become ready to grow. John 16, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin at the end of the chapter. We're going to work our way through the whole chapter tonight, but let's begin with verse number 31. We'll read down to the end of the chapter, verse 33. The Bible says there, Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John 16, Jesus is walking with his disciples from the upper room to the Mount of Olives. As he's walking with these eleven men, he's talking to them, and he's encouraging them about what is waiting them in their very near future. He's telling them in this chapter that they are going to suffer for His name. The title of the sermon this evening is this, The Christian's Call to Suffer. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we turn our attention to a hard truth. Some truths are fun to preach and easy to preach, to talk about joy and peace and love. Lord, are things that every preacher aspires to preach on and talk about. But Lord, to talk about suffering and pain and hardship and sorrow, They're just as much biblical truths, but ones that we don't like to talk about. But God, tonight, this is what we're covering as we go verse by verse through the Bible. This was the topic at hand as you talked with your disciples. And Lord God, you were preparing them for hardships that laid ahead of them. But yet, great joy that laid ahead of them as a result. Lord, help us to understand the passage within context and to make applications to our day-to-day life. Lord, we love you tonight. I believe everybody in this room tonight loves you, or they wouldn't be here on a Sunday night. Lord, we pray that uh, our love for you would only intensify and go stronger as a result of our attendance this evening. Lord God, bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 2023 is winding down. Hard to believe. Where did the time go as we get ready for 2024? I look on with great wonder at how asleep... The average American church is. Last week, I read a book entitled Autopsy of a Deceased Church. The author, who uh, writes many books and is well studied, is pastored and now does all sorts of surveying, he uh, took 14 churches that had one time been strong and then died. He interviewed their former lay leaders and their former church members and he took, 14, he took uh, things about those 14 churches that had in common, and he turned it into a book. Fascinating read. In this book, this man who is well studied and knows American uh, church culture well, he estimates that 90% of churches in our country are either sick, very sick, or dying. 90% sick, very sick, or dying. In his estimation, he said only 10% of churches in this country would be labeled as healthy. That makes me appreciate what we have at White Oak Baptist Church that much more. I read through the book objectively, trying to see if any of the elements of sickness in a church could be seen in ours, and what I could tell, it didn't seem like any were. Praise God for that. Praise God that we have a healthy church. But as we look at Christianity as a whole... Why is it on the decline in this country? 
What is it that is causing our young people to graduate high school and walk away from God and the Bible? Why don't we see revival across this great land? The answer, we are far too comfortable to actually care. The truth is that the greatest enemy to sustained Christianity in any culture is prosperity. Prosperity causes churches to cease. Prosperity causes church to cease to care. Many Christians believe the false narrative that suffering is in some way a bad thing. We do everything we can to keep from it. My head hurts, I'll pop an aspirin. My back hurts, I'll get a brace. And not saying you shouldn't avail yourself to things that help you, but we will sacrifice doing what's right if that's what it takes to remain comfortable. If you believe that suffering for some reason is bad or wrong or something that shouldn't happen to you, uh, then uh, you set yourself up to be sorely disappointed with the Lord. And you set yourself up to grow bitter against God. Bitter against God. Why would God let me suffer? Here's what we do as American Christians, Western cultured Christians. I would never let my child suffer under any circumstances. If God is letting me suffer, then God must not be a very good parent. Now, do you see the error in that logic? Do you see it? We are beginning with the premise that my style of parenting is right, and God's style of parenting needs to get in line with mine. That's not how this works, folks. Let me remind you that His ways are perfect. Our ways are flawed. Remember what Jesus told the disciples? He said, If ye then being evil know how to give good things unto your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven? We are evil when it comes to parenting, and compared to God. But we suppose that because we would never let suffering come to our children, then God should never let suffering come to us, and we suppose wrong. Suffering is a result of the sin curse. And until we're taken to heaven, uh, suffering is both inevitable and certain. You can count on suffering at some point. Suffering is used by God to change us when we live in sin. Suffering is used by God to refine us, to make us more pure. Suffering is used by God so that we can show empathy to others who suffer around us. Suffering is used by God to draw us into a deeper, more intimate bond with Him. We uh, can deeper know the love that Christ had for us on Calvary when we experience suffering. And Christians, instead of running to suffering and embracing God's plan, we run from it and we'll do anything to get away from it. To be a true, devout Christian means to suffer. To suffer. It comes with the territory. It's part of the calling to bear your cross. And as I say on a regular basis, we need to be reminded that the cross is a symbol of suffering. It's a symbol of suffering. What did you expect when you came to Christianity, my friend? 
What did you expect when you read the words of Jesus to deny yourself and take up your cross and Jesus says, follow me. John 16. Jesus and His eleven disciples have departed the upper room. They're walking to Gethsemane. Jesus takes the time to prepare them for the very near future. A time where they will be scattered. A time where they will no longer, uh, He will no longer be there to shield them from the wrath of the Sanhedrin. A time when they will be called upon to suffer both socially and physically. Look down in verse 33. John 15, 33, These things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. Look at this. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We live in a country that has enjoyed religious freedom going all the way back to the winning of the Revolutionary War in 1776. Hundreds of years our country has known what it means to have religious liberty and freedom. The First Amendment is something that not only we have known, but our grandparents have known and our great-grandparents have known. And if your family's been in this country for any uh, length of time with generations, uh, 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 as far as generations go, then it's just something that we have begun to assume will be there. But Satan has learned, oh, please hear this. Satan has learned that the best way to make Christians zealous and fervent is to persecute them corporately. He learned that back in Acts, didn't he? He brought persecution down on the church. And what happened? Uh, those Christians shot out of that church like a cannon all over Samaria and all over the Gentile world preaching and teaching the gospel. And uh, what Satan hoped to squash and get rid of ended up uh, spreading and, and he lost control of it. And now Christianity is all over the world and Satan has updated his approach Here's how Satan is handling the American church. He's rocking it to sleep with prosperity and wealth and comfort. And watch this. If he can make us spiritually obese enough that instead of us, uh, instead of us uh, running out in a zealous manner sharing our faith, we'll fall over dead of a spiritual heart attack because we've been so comfortable. Jesus says suffering ought to be part of the Christian life. Satan wants to rock us to sleep. This is Satan's tactic. However, that's the corporate level. If there is a Christian in a church who wants to step it up and be extra zealous for the Lord and serve the Lord with all their heart and give God their best, you can be sure that Satan will be there to persecute you privately to try to get you to back off. When does persecution come to an American Christian? It comes when one man or one woman decides to step out by himself or herself and do something big for God. It may show itself in the form of a family uh, criticizing you and asking you to dial it back. You're too zealous. You're uh, too much of a fundamentalist. You're out there too far. Dial it back. You, you're pushing too hard. You're pushing too strong. And, and you're standing out like a sore thumb. If you want your head uh, lopped off, stick it above the crowd. And I promise you, someone will take a swing at it. And sometimes it comes in the form of we, we step out for the Lord and decide, you know what, I'm going to start being faithful to church or I'm going to start uh, being involved in the church's outreach program and I'm going to start being involved in one of the church's prayer groups and I'm going to really try to get out there and get involved. And then all of a sudden your washing machine breaks. 
all of a sudden you've got a $2,000 car repair that you didn't see coming. And Lord, I'm trying to serve you and look at the setback I have as soon as I make this commitment and this decision. Suffering comes in many forms. There's social suffering. There's physical suffering. There's relational suffering. There's financial suffering. Suffering is either going to make you more fervent for the Lord, or it will be a bucket of water that causes you, your flame to go out and for you to quit. Which is it going to be for you? Suffering comes along and we dial back the intensity instead of dialing it up. Let's join Jesus on the path from the city of Jerusalem out to the Garden of Gethsemane as He walks and talks with His disciples. Let's look at three overarching truths out of John 16 as we consider this title, The Christian's Call to Suffer. Number one, notice the disciples' preparation. Jesus is preparing His disciples for a time of imminent suffering. He tells them, this will come, it will come very soon. Letter A, notice their excommunication. Their excommunication. Look at verse number 1 of John 16. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. I'm going to share some hard things with you that are coming down the pipeline, and I don't want you to be offended. Okay, Lord Jesus, what things are coming our way? The disciples may have asked. Look at verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Now, these men had grown up steeped in religious tradition. Every Sabbath, they were present in the synagogue. It was as much part of their community life as going to church would be for uh, each one of you. And one only the worst of society got kicked out of these synagogues. They were labeled, as I've discussed this year, as the publicans and sinners. To be told that you could never go back, that you were kicked out of the synagogue for life, was to be labeled and shamed by the Jewish culture as a whole. Jesus said, they're going to excommunicate you from the synagogue. Did that happen? Well, the curse approved by the Sanhedrin shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven, it declaimed, let Nazarenes, who were Nazarenes? Followers of the one from Nazareth. These are followers of Christ. Listen, let Nazarenes and heretics perish as in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be enrolled with the righteous. That was declared by the Sanhedrin and was distributed to every synagogue in Judaism. Nazarenes were not allowed in the synagogue. If you wanted to be a follower of Jesus, you are not allowed in there. And we know that Paul would go into a new area where no one knew who he was. And when they figured out he was a follower of Christ, they'd kick him out of the synagogue. They would endure social suffering. I don't know that we fully get this. You listening this evening? A small percentage of our communities go to church. But when this was written, everybody went to synagogue. Everybody. This would be like everybody in your neighborhood is wrapped up in a social event and all of a sudden you've been told exclusively you can't come. Their excommunication. They wouldn't just suffer from lack of social uh, uh, status. Letter B, their execution. Look at verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. 
And this prophecy did indeed come to truth. Stephen would be the first martyr. Shortly thereafter, James, the son of Zebedee, had his head lopped off. Historical record tells us that all but John, James's brother, would be killed, martyred, for their willingness to follow Christ. Those who did the killing fully believed they were doing God's service. In fact, Paul was one such person who did the killing. And he said in Philippians 3.6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, speaking of his own credentials, touching the righteous which is in the law, blameless. He said, oh, I persecuted the church. I did all I could to persecute the church. Jesus was preparing His disciples for some hard days ahead. He told them, you'll be excommunicated. Okay, they may have thought. We've already been through that with you, Jesus. Then He continued, following Me is likely to get you killed. Then He told them, that's, uh, then what He told them seemed even harder than that. Oh, you're going to suffer excommunication. You're going to suffer execution. Oh, but there's something far worse that's going to happen to you men. Well, what could be worse than being killed for my faith? Let her see Christ's exodus. Christ's exodus. Jesus said, not only are you going to be kicked out of the synagogues, and not only are they going to kill you, I'm not going to be around when any of it happens. I'm leaving, and you're going to be here by yourself. Look at verse number 4. Look at verse 4. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told them of you. Uh, and, and these things I say not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now, Jesus says, I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me whither goest thou. You're not even thinking about me. You're just worried about yourselves. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Now, I love this about Jesus. These disciples, Jesus says to them, I've told you over and over again I'm leaving, and none of you have even stopped to ask me where I'm going. You're so worried about yourself, you're not even worried about me. And Jesus said, I understand that. He said, I get that you're sorrowful. Instead of Jesus chastising them, he turns around and he loves them. Jesus was telling them that He was not going to be there anymore to shield them from the bad actors, the evil that, that would physically lead them or guide them in, in the days to come. He would not be there. Look down at verse 16. Verse 16. Jesus said, A little while, and you shall not see Me. And again, a little while, and you shall see Me, because I go to the Father. Now, we know that means that Jesus would ascend and then come back in the form of a rapture. We know that's what that means, but they had no idea. Look at 17. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and you shall not see me. And again a little while, and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, What is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. So, Jesus is walking with his eleven disciples out from the upper room to Gethsemane, and Jesus is teaching, and, and I'm sure they're sort of huddled behind him, and maybe a few of them slow down a few steps, and this conversation's going on. What's he talking about? Uh, you're going to see me a little while, then you're not going to see me, and then you'll see me. Uh, this doesn't make any sense, but Jesus, knowing what was going on, he perceived their conversation. Look at 19. Now, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, do you inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me? Now, 
uh, was it two or three Sundays ago, we talked about narratives, how everyone develops a narrative, and then we, we search for facts to back up our narrative, right? Uh, you ever gotten a narrative about somebody that they're just annoying? Oh, don't look at me like that. We've all done this, haven't we? Oh, that person's annoying. And then it doesn't matter what they do because you think they're annoying. You can only see the annoying things about them. You know what I'm talking about tonight? Are you guys awake? Amen. I know I'm preaching a heavy topic. But, you know, I want to encourage you. I want you to encourage me. So don't sit there and look like you're just enduring the sermon. Amen. All right. You can participate a little bit. You ever done that where you're looking at somebody and you think, that person's annoying? Or maybe you think, that person's dictatorial. And you know what? Maybe they've changed, but you can't see that they've changed because you have a narrative in your head and nothing's going to ever change that narrative. We get narratives in our head, don't we? And then we hunt and peck for facts that uh, back, back up our own narrative. And um, uh, the disciples had their heart set on Jesus being their earthly king. And, and they just kept on telling him how he, uh, he just kept on telling them how he was gonna leave them. And uh, back in chapter 14, remember he said, in my father's house are many mansions, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself, that where I am there you may be also. And then he told him again in chapter 15 that he was gonna go away. And, and now, now he's telling him again in chapter 16, and they're just not getting it. They just don't understand because it did not compute. They had an end goal. They had an end result. And they just didn't want to hear what He had to say. Hear the Lord Jesus, who knows the future, uh, what the future holds, rather, is, going, is, is doing all He can to prepare them for the days of suffering that lie ahead. They have no idea that they're getting ready to suffer, but the Lord does. And He's trying to help them and prepare them. You and I do not know what awaits the very near future or the long-term future. You ever had one of those surreal moments where you get a phone call and you think, is this happening to me? Did, did my loved one just get in a tragic car accident? Doctor calls and said, we went over your blood work and we need you to come in and meet with us. Your heart begins to race. Well, doctor, just... Tell me what it is. Oh, no, we're going to talk about it in the office. You get that call that a mother or father has passed. A brother or sister has passed. Maybe you even have that day where a child dies. The reality is, church, we don't know what the future holds for any one of us. I think of Mimi today. Mimi's son died a year ago, I believe it was yesterday. It's a hard day for her. I remember getting the call that they had found Adam dead. I remember getting in a car. Were the owners, are you the one that was with me? We drove, sat there in her living room, and it was a hard day. A very difficult day. We don't know, but the Lord knows. You know, when that day comes for you, it's not going to catch the Lord by surprise. I have some good news for you, church. He's already in your tomorrows. He's already there. He lives there. 
Did you ever think that maybe some of the hardships that he brings in your life today are meant to prepare you for the hardships that are coming ahead? The Lord is trying to prepare you. Don't resist. Well, why does God allow this suffering? Why does God allow this pain? Why does God... Maybe God is uh, building up your tolerance level for suffering so that when that hardship hits your life, you won't call Him into question and criticize Him. Number one, the disciples' preparation. Number two, notice the Holy Spirit's purpose. I don't know what kind of pain awaits you. But I can tell you this, pain awaits you. We, uh, we had a really good time a handful of years ago, Angela and I did, and we were just, we were in a great stride in life. I mean, kids were being obedient beyond measure. Our marriage was just at an all-time high. The church was growing. There was no one who was, you know, uh, there's just a unified spirit in the church, and we're just, I mean, we're humming through life without any problems. And I guess you can call it the flinch factor. Angela looks at me and says, I'm scared. And I said, what are you scared about? She said, this isn't how life works. Something bad's about to happen. How many of you learned that's pretty, pretty accurate? Things are going good, things are going good, things are going good. Wham! The, just the, the floor falls out from underneath you, Right? And uh, you know what? You're, someone said you're either in a trial or uh, you're getting ready to go into a trial. Isn't that how it works? We go through hardships. Maybe it isn't uh, religious suffering that you're getting ready to do, endure. Maybe it's physical agony. Maybe it's some sort of emotional suffering. Maybe a depression that grips you and won't let go. Or an anxiety that grips your heart and you live in fear. You may face financial suffering from a loss of a job or some other financial setback. When we hit these things, we need the Holy Spirit's help to guide us through. Jesus looks at His disciples and He says, Guys, this isn't going to make sense quite yet, but very soon it will make perfect and total sense when you hit your suffering. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit in the world to help carry you through these difficult times. Many people completely misunderstand who the Holy Spirit is and exactly why He was sent from earth to indwell the believer. Jesus tells us exactly uh, uh, what His mission statement or purpose is. Letter A, notice the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to comfort. Look at verse number 6. Oh, we know this, church. We know this one well. Uh, but because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. Did you catch it? Did you catch that? Jesus is saying that He knows His departure would create a void in the life of His disciples that would make them sorrowful. That's why the Holy Spirit came. He came to comfort us as we follow Christ without Him being physically with us. I have found one thing to be extremely awkward in being a Christian. I'm following someone I cannot see. I'm following and talking to someone that's never... Uh, audibly spoken back to me. I've had many conversations with the Lord Jesus, but can I tell you one thing that's never happened? The Lord Jesus has never spoken back to me audibly. 
It's never happened. And you know what? It would be a lot easier. I'm just going to state facts here this evening. It'd be a lot easier to have a relationship with Jesus if I woke up every morning and saw Him. And I had a chance to uh, interact with Him. If I could say to the Lord Jesus, Hey, can we meet for breakfast tomorrow? I have some problems in my life. I'd like to lay these problems out for you and get some wisdom and some guidance. But Jesus is not here. And that makes it hard to be a follower of Christ when He's not physically present. So what did the Lord Jesus do to make that up? He gave us the Holy Spirit to help us. He lives inside of you, and He's there to comfort you and walk you through life's hardships. Look down at verse number 20. Christ comes back to this thought here in verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Only the Lord Jesus could pull off this analogy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. Ye now therefore have sorrow. Jesus says, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Asking ye shall rejoice, or asking ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. You know, those who hate Christ, they rejoice that He's not physically present on the earth. They love it. They love that they don't have to deal with King Jesus sitting on a throne. And they think that they can structure our world's systems in such a way where they can persecute and and punish. Listen, I watch, pick your news channel, I watch the news from time to time and I think everything is stacked against the Christian Everything, it's the most unpopular person to be on planet Earth is a Christian. Everything is stacked against the Christian. The music uh, uh, in our world, it promotes activities that are anti-Christian. The dress in our world promotes uh, lasciviousness and lust, which is anti-Christian. They take the Lord's name in vain at every turn. How many of you got to go to work tomorrow and hear somebody take the Lord's name in vain? It's all around us everywhere. You can't watch more than five minutes of most TV shows without seeing some kind of sin. You can't even make it through a commercial break without having booze or immodest women or some sort of sin being thrown in your face. But one day, the Lord Jesus is going to come and He's going to right every wrong and He's going to remove the pain. He's going to remove the sorrow and it will be popular one day to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that day, we'll no longer have to sorrow. We'll no longer have to live under the suffering of this world. We won't have to deal with the persecution of Christians. No, because the Lord Jesus will reign supreme and those who are faithful will rule with Him. Jesus says you're going to go through a time of great sorrow, much like a woman goes through the darkness of pain and the shadow of death as she gives birth. And uh, that that sorrow, that agony as a woman is in travail, pushing that child from her womb and uh, to the outside of her body. But that child is taken and, and cleaned up and put in a blanket and laid in that mother's arms. And all of that sorrow disappears the moment that she holds that baby. And one day... One day, we'll behold the face of our Savior. 
And every struggle and pain and sorrow, every heartache and disappointment, every time a friend stabs you in the back, and every time someone wrongs you, every time that you cry yourself to sleep at night, every time you pull a blanket over your head and want the world to go away, every hurt and sorrow and agony will all fall away when we behold the face of our Savior and our Lord and King. These disciples knew that they would have to suffer. They knew from what Jesus said, but they would soon come to a realization that they would suffer greatly for what they believed. These disciples needed comfort. Some of the disciples were crucified. Peter on an upside-down cross. Andrew on an X-shaped cross. Some were tied, uh, their four limbs tied to four horses that pulled in different directions. They were quartered in the streets. Others had their brains bashed out of their head with a club. Some were hanged on a tree. Others were beheaded. Then in later generations, many would die by way of being burnt at the stake or drowned to death in the sea. What sorrow. What suffering. What pain. But joy comes in the morning. The Holy Spirit provides strength and comfort to those who are tortured. And through their trial, they're able to stand strong and endure to the end because the Holy Spirit of God gives them the strength to endure. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to comfort us. Letter B, the Holy Spirit's purpose is to convict. Look at verse number 8. And when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin. That's to trim away and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on Me. Of righteousness because I go to My Father and ye shall see Me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Look at verse 9. We see the Holy Spirit would come along and He would reprove or convict the world of sin. Verse 9, of sin because why? They believe not on Me. The Holy Spirit was sent in this world to find the bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember the story of Abraham? When Abraham needed to find a bride uh, for Isaac, what did he do? He took his servant and he said, go back to my homeland. Go back uh, to where I came from and seek out a woman who will be qualified to marry my son and bring her back to me. He had him take his hand and place it under his thigh. Men, don't ever place your hand under my thigh. Amen? I don't ever want anybody. Amen. Praise God. That was the culture of that day. Place your hand under my thigh and promise me that you will follow these very clear set of directions. And so what happened is he went into a far land and the servant found Rebecca and brought Rebecca back. And Rebecca and Isaac married and uh, he fulfilled that purpose. Now this is a picture of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Abraham symbolizes God the Father. He was the one that sent the servant who represented God the Holy Spirit uh, to go get a bride who is Rebecca for uh, his son who represented God the Son. Isaac represented God the Son. Watch this now. Abraham sent his servant in the world uh, to get a bride to bring back to Isaac. And God the Father sent the Holy Spirit down into the world to get a bride to bring back 
back to marry King Jesus. And one day, the bride will live with Jesus forevermore. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? What, did the Holy, what does the Holy Spirit do today? He goes around and He seeks out people who do not believe and He reproves the world of their sin of unbelief so that they'll believe and so that they'll be part of the bride of Christ. I again will say here that there are those who claim that because we're all bent so hard into sin that no man seeks God. And that might be true. But let me tell you something that while men not, might not be seeking God, God is seeking man. He wants to bring all men under repentance. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He didn't just die for our sins. He is not just the propitiation for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And the Holy Spirit has come into the world to convict the world, reprove the world of sin, so that Jesus Christ can have His bride. To convict the world of sin. But notice, not only the loss of sin but the saved to righteousness. Look down at verse 10. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit does not convict you directly over sin. Let me say that again. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit does not convict you directly over sin. You say, yes, He does. I've heard that my whole life. Show me a verse in the Bible that says the Holy Spirit convicts you, over if you're saved, over sin. You can't. Look, I've looked far and wide. If you know of a verse, come show it to me. He doesn't do that. Now, I have preached that, and I have believed that. But the more I dive into the Bible, the Holy Spirit does not convict someone who's saved over their sin. He convicts the lost over sin. Well, then what does the Holy Spirit do? He doesn't convict us for our sin, He convicts us to righteousness. Watch this now. He looks at where you're out of line in your behavior with the Lord Jesus Christ, and instead of pouring on the guilt and making you feel worthless, He prods and pushes and encourages you to get your heart and life in line with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the Holy Spirit's duty is? It's to get you, my friend, to think like Christ to talk like Christ, to walk like Christ, and to act like Christ. And when we're not in line with the Lord, He says, hey, why don't I move you a little bit over this way? Hey, you know what? You're talking like the world. Let's move you over here and get you to talk like Christ. Hey, you know what? Those broken mentalities are of the world. That was when you were in Egypt in your sin. Let's, let's bump you over here. And why don't we have the renewing of your mind, Romans 12.1. And the, 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 the mind of Christ be put in you, Philippians 2.5. He leads us. He reproves us into righteousness. One way you know you're saved this evening, one way you know you're saved is that when you do wrong, there's this little nudge inside of you and says, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, but you should be doing this. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come along and say, you guilty piece of trash. How dare you do that? No, watch this. Satan is the one that pours on the guilt. The Lord Jesus and brother, the Holy Spirit doesn't pour on guilt. The Holy Spirit, He comes along and He gently moves us to walk and talk and act and behave and think like Christ. And once you've been saved a year or two or five or ten or twenty, you look back over your shoulder and you say, I sure am not the man, I sure am not the woman that I was. The Lord Jesus Christ is changing me through that Holy Spirit. 
Because why? He's reproving us to make us righteous. He reproves or convicts the loss of their sin. He reproves or convicts the saved to righteousness. Notice verse 11. He reproves or convicts the world of judgment. Look at verse 11. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Who is the prince of this world? It is Satan himself. One day the Holy Spirit will bring the accusations against Satan and those who lined up with him. And the Holy Spirit will bring the accusations. God the Father will declare him guilty and they'll bind Satan hand and foot and they'll toss him into the flames of hell for all of eternity. Oh, what a day that will be. Amen? The accuser of the brethren will be found guilty and will no longer accuse us and will no longer tempt us. How many of you are like me? You're sick of falling into the same traps over and over and over again. I can't remember who I had this conversation with, but recently I was talking about waking up one day and having no more pride in my heart. you imagine that? Tomorrow morning you woke up, your spouse just lets out a loose of names, uh, lets out a string of names and calls you a bunch of things, tells you you're a loser, tells you you're terrible, tells you they don't think you're good looking anymore. I mean, ma'am, you can cook a meal and um, your husband can criticize that food. Sir, you come home from work and your wife says, you know, I just don't think you work very hard today. If Angel were to tell me that after I came home from work, if she were to say to me tonight, you know what, I think you're kind of lazy. She wouldn't say that. She's been telling me how hard I've been working today. But if she were to say that, you know what, I'd be a little offended. I'd be a little upset with her. How dare you? I'd, I'd go into defense mode. Right? I've been, I've been working hard today. If I had sat down today to eat lunch and said, you know, you burnt this bread. What's wrong with you? You know what would have kicked up in her? P-R-I-D-E. The same thing that would kick up in me. Can you imagine waking up one day and having no pride in your heart? Not one ounce. Can you imagine one day waking up in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes not being something you have to battle against anymore? Can you imagine waking up one day and there's no more tears? There's no more sorrow? There's no more pain? Because God has taken the prince of this world and has judged him and thrown him into hell. Oh, what a day that will be. We see the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, came to comfort us in His absence. Came to convict us in His absence. Let her see the Holy Spirit's purpose is to convey. Look at verse number 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Jesus is saying here, he's saying there are many things that he wants to tell them, but they're not ready spiritually to handle them. They're not ready. Let me help you with an Old Testament comparison. Imagine if Moses had come out of the wilderness after being on the backside of the wilderness for 40 years. He comes walking in to um, uh, Cairo there where the Egyptians are serving. And, and he says to them, he says, all right, here's the plan. All right, I'm going to get you out of here. 
We're going to go into the wilderness and you're going to suffer. I mean, you're going to eat the same meal for 40 years. Okay? You're going to face armies that are bigger and stronger than you. Uh, you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to drink water out of a flint rock. Twice. You know what a lot of those Israelites would have said? Yeah, I'm good. Moses, you can go away. Uh, that doesn't sound any better than the captivity we're doing right now. But you know what Moses wasn't, here's what I'm getting at. Those people were not ready to hear that. You know what they needed to do? They needed to take the step in front of them and then have the Holy Spirit, or rather have God convey to them the next step when the time is ready. And then you get to Joshua 24 and they've conquered the land. Now, how does that apply to me and you? Here's how it applies. The Holy Spirit's duty is to guide you each step of the way. That means the Holy Spirit may guide you into a a time of suffering. But you know what He's going to do? He's going to give you the strength to get through that time. You know what else that Holy Spirit does? He comes along and He says, I'm going to lead you to establish a biblical principle and standard in your life to help you to do what's right. There are some things I will not preach from this pulpit. There are standards that I won't stand up here and declare. Standards that are well established in my home. But I will not stand up here and preach them. You know why? Because there's some things that are true that Pastor Lejeune can preach because they're black and white in this Bible. And there's other things that the Holy Spirit needs to lead you into when you're at that place and you're ready. And the Holy Spirit said, He said, uh, rather Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will guide you into truth when you're ready for that time to come. Do you know what it's like to have the Holy Spirit say to you, hey, you know what? Maybe that television show isn't such a good idea. Or maybe this. You know, the Holy Spirit will say, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that show, but, but why don't you give yourself, instead of that show, why don't you give yourself to 30 more minutes of Bible reading? Why don't you shut that off and read your Bible? Or how about this one? Hey, you know what? When you were a less mature Christian, it was okay for you to be that fanatical about sports. Why don't we start dialing back the sports so that we can dial up our walk with the Lord? Hey, ladies, why don't we spend a little bit less time on social media, the Holy Spirit might say, and a little more time on our knees praying for our children and praying for our spouses and praying for our church and praying for the hurting. You see, the Holy Spirit will guide you when the time is right. He wants to convey these things. You remember when Elijah was in his depression and he was taken to the mount? You remember this? And a a big earthquake came through. And the Bible says that God was not in the earthquake. And I may not have the, the events in order, but a lightning storm came through and the Bible said God was not in the storm. And And all of these events happened... And it said God was not in those things. What was God in? He was in the still small voice. This is why Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. We need that time where our spirits are still and quiet. I have right here in my pocket some headphones that I wear. And I think most of us today own either AirPods or something like this. And, you know... um, the truck I drive doesn't have one of those stereo systems that connects to my phone. So, 
you know, I'll put these in and I'll listen to an audio book or I'll listen to a podcast. Maybe sometimes I'll, I'll listen to music and, and uh, these are very handy. They're very helpful. Do you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit says to me, put those back in your pocket and leave the radio off and sit in silence because I want to speak to you from within. I think sometimes we have music on, podcasts playing, we're constantly inundated with information. We've got these things in our ears, or we've got something playing in our car, we've got the TV on in the background. When are you taking time to let the Holy Spirit convey anything to you when there's constant noise hitting you and be just the barrage of it? We have to learn how to shut it off and be still and know that He is our God. Number three, we've seen the disciples' preparation, the Holy Spirit's purpose. Number three, lastly, notice Christ's perspective. Letter A, notice the disciples' favor with God. Look down at verse 25. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. So, context here, verse 24, the disciples are confused. What do you mean for a while you'll be with us and then a little while you'll be gone and you're coming back? And, and What do you mean by a little while? And Jesus says, uh, do, are, are you wondering what I mean by that? 25, he begins to offer the explanation. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs. But I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name... And I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me. You see that? Verse 27. The Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I am come out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. What is the easiest way to get on Pastor Lejeune's good side? I'm going to give you a... Give you a little entry path to get on Pastor Lejeune's good side. Can I tell you how to do it? Be genuinely good to my children. You know why? Because I love my children. And you know what? If you're a parent in the room, whether your kids are little or grown, it's the same way for you. It's no different for you. If someone, not be manipulative, if someone genuinely is good to your children, and has the best intent to help them, and executes that well, you, your opinion of them is going to skyrocket. You're going to think the world of them. You're going to think the world of them. Love all my kids, and do it the right way, and I am a big fan of you. You know, it's no different for God the Father and God the Son. Here, Jesus says, let me tell you why you have favor with God. Because the uh, John 1, uh, he came into his own, and his own what? Received him not. Uh, he was rejected of his own. But these men stayed with Jesus to the end, and when no one else believed that Jesus was God, they accepted the Son, and they believed in the Son. And, he, and, and Jesus says to them, I'm going to tell you why you have favor with God. It isn't because you're some great people. It isn't because you've done something wonderful. It's because you have believed and accepted me. We live in a world that hates the Lord. They, they curse and use His name blasphemously. They, they mock Him and they belittle Him and they put Him down. And praise be to the ones who elevate the Son by doing their best to accept Him 
and believe in Him. The disciples' favor with God, let her be, notice, the disciples' faith in Christ. Look at 29. Jesus has spoken as plainly to them about Him and the Father as He possibly can. 29. His disciples said unto Him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest from God. Oftentimes Jesus would speak above the heads of everyone who is listening. And he did this on purpose. And that would even include sometimes his own disciples. You remember Jesus told the story of the parable of the seed and the sower? You know, and, and, and going out and throwing the seed in the field. And the disciples came to Jesus and said, you know what, that one was over our heads too. Can, can you help us with that one? We, we didn't quite understand. And Jesus said, I'm going to explain this to you, but I'm not going to explain it to them. And Jesus had a way of doing that. He had a way of talking over everyone's head. And finally, Jesus, on his way to Gethsemane, as he's becoming more and more laden with burden of sorrow, knowing that he's about to drink of the cup of our sin, he, he finally comes down and speaks to them in terms that are as plain as he possibly can make it. He says, I'm going to my Father. One day I will bring you up to heaven and you will get to meet the Father for yourself. And in the plainness of his speech, many of his disciples finally got it and placed their whole understanding and faith in what Jesus was telling them. Let her see. We see the disciples fear to overcome. They thought they believed, but they didn't know what was in store for them. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Do ye now believe? You say you believe. Do ye now believe? Hey, look at me. Look at me. If I were to tell you, you have a trial coming up in your life that's going to rock your world. You tell me, oh, I believe in Jesus. Are you going to believe when that trial hits you hard? Think of my sister who delivered a stillborn baby about a year ago. Boy, that was a faith gut check right there for her and her husband. Think of Brother Vara back here. Had to go through cancer. Well, that's a gut check for the whole family, isn't it? Especially if he'd have died. You raise your kids in church to love the Lord. You try your best to model Christianity for them. And then they turn their back on church. Do you, do you now believe? Are you, are you still in this thing? Look at, verse 30, look at verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh. Yea, is now come that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. Look at the declarative statement Jesus makes here. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He questions their faith. Yes, in principle you believe, but when persecution comes, each of you will run in fear and you'll hide. You'll be afraid. Then right before he leaves, eight of them at the base of the Mount of Olives and three of them a stone's throw in distance to pray, he tells them this. He says, in the world you should have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. 
I don't know what you're going through right now. Don't. I may know some surface details of what some of you are going through, but I don't know what's going on in that heart of yours. I don't know what any of us are getting ready to go through. But I do know this. We can be of good cheer. Our Savior has overcome the world. You can overcome your fear. You do so by placing your eyes on the one who is the author and finisher of your faith. His nail-pierced hands right now, church, are stretched out wide. What you got to do is you got to run to Him and find your peace and be filled with peace. I don't know that I would have ever preached this sermon if we weren't going verse by verse through the Bible. Because we don't live in a country where we suffer for our faith. I think maybe Brother Javaid over in Pakistan can probably preach this sermon and it probably means a whole lot more over there than it means here. Sometimes we take a sermon and we put it in our memory banks for what's coming down the road. With all that said... Some of you here are suffering in your own way. I just want to say to you, the way Jesus said to his disciples, have no fear. He said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Lord, I pray tonight, help our eyes to be on the author and finisher of our faith. I pray, God, that as we endure trouble and trial, this side of eternity, we'd be faithful to you. Lord, the disciples were devout all the way to the grave. They never once backed down. They stayed faithful to their calling. Lord, I think sometimes our problem here is that we expect not to suffer instead of expecting to suffer. We push away from suffering instead of embracing it. We lay down our cross instead of carrying our cross. Lord God, as suffering comes into our life, may we see the plan and purpose you have for it. Or may we not ask you why, but Lord, may we walk that path with you, knowing that you have our best interests at heart. Lord, a sermon like this, I don't know who does or doesn't need it, but Lord, you do. And so I pray each heart you'd work in individually. Drive those truths home that each one needs. Please, Spirit of God, convey truth. May we be still long enough tonight in our heart and spirit so we can be led into righteousness. Lord God, open our eyes. Help us to love you in Jesus' name.